Africa State of Mind with Lee Kasumba. Get it on iTunes now. Welcome to the eighth episode of Africa State of Mind with Lee Kasumba, a show and platform that aims to highlight good stories out of Africa by Africans or people who simply adore the continent wherever they may be on the globe. Hey there, a quick note though, don't forget that we know a lot of people have been joining into the iTunes family and kind of listening to the podcast and subscribing, so thank you for that. We would ask if you could please rate us and let us know what it is that you love about the podcast, what you want to hear more of, and just yeah, how it is that we can make it more enjoyable for you because the podcast Africa State of Mind is in fact all about you. On this episode though we sat down with Dr. John Carney who's a celebrated South African actor and playwright best known for his numerous performances in protest theatre during the apartheid years in South Africa including Seize Where Bunsy is Dead, Master Harold and the Boys, Saturday Night at the Palace, The Island and My Children, My Africa. Okay, He took us through memory lane to the present. Some stories are sad, some hilarious and some are just jaw-dropping. This is how our conversation went. Enjoy. Woohoo! So excited. Africa State of Mind today is, I keep on saying this because I just feel, I don't know, I almost feel like this podcast is exactly where we are at the moment with Africa just exploding globally. And my guest is somebody who has been representing Africa globally for over five decades um, in the theater industry and arts and creatives, which is amazing. So I, I want to try and do this introduction right. So if, if I make a mistake, so you can just smile at me. I don't want to say your name. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to try this quote. Daddy, if I could stand on my own feet and not be somebody else's tool, I'd have some respect for myself. I'd be a man. This is a strong room of dreams, the dreamers, my people, the simple people who you never you never find mentioned in the history books, who never get statues erected to them or mon- monuments commemorating their great deeds. You must understand one thing. We own nothing except ourselves. This world... And its laws allow us nothing except ourselves. Cesar Bunzi is dead. That's where that excerpt comes from. My guest today has, without without a doubt, past, present, and future impacted and changed the trajectory for, of his home country, South Africa. Through art and the power of words, he spoke against apartheid government and ended up being arrested and beaten a few times. And he's had numerous death threats too. Still, when asked why he wasn't bitter, he said, "You can't have time for bitterness when you're doing good work and you know the." work you do is appreciated and his work is indeed appreciated and certainly always will be with a career spanning five decades he's one of the theater greats not only in south africa but around the world he's won he's won the prestigious tony award on broadway he's um caesar bunzi Bunzi is dead the island and missing have shaken the establishments around the world and while he's also been able to do this while entertaining people he also played othello um during apartheid south africa and he was in captain america yay yay he's in the much anticipated black panther which i cannot wait to see february 2018 and he's also going to be starring in the remake of the lion king dr john carney how do i even like I, i have like goosebumps I'm like in awe of just all you are. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Did uh, I get that okay? Absolutely. I was like, I mean, <laughs> you could have been my 
agent or my manager. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would love to be your manager and agent. You know, the 20% checks would look kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. No, no, absolutely. All I, I always look at myself as an elder. Yeah. I'm 74 years old. I've done it all. Yeah. It's time to be me. Yeah. It's time to be selfish. Yeah. It's time not to care about what anyone says. Wow. What anyone does doesn't bother me. Yeah. It's time to I just... can even insult you and not apologize. <laughs> what are you going to do? Nothing. You're going to like... explain says, I'm leaving my loneliness old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying that privilege of making people really angry. And they all say, leave that alone. You know he's old. Yeah. I'm not old. I did it deliberately. Exactly. <laughs> now, uh, Dr. Kani, yeah. I was listening to... Um, I mean, you you were an engine assembler at the Ford company, right? And I was listening to Michelle Obama speak recently at the Obama Foundation. And she basically said that her parents never had the luxury of doing work for passion. They, the work that they did was to survive, you know. So you transitioned from working as an assembler, you know, at an um, engine assembler at the Ford company into a career path that would be one of passion during the height of apartheid in South Africa. How did you manage to transition from work for survival into work for passion? In this early 60s, you know, 50s and 60s, uh, as a black child, mm. uh, our parents laughed when we talked about our dreams. Yes. And they made it clear very quickly yeah. that your dream can only come true if we can afford. So you've got to understand, you model your dream, what can my parents afford? If the parents could take you to school, that's the beginning and that's the best. Wow. And when you could finish high school and then if you could go to university, it's an incredible impossibility. Because yes. no parents could afford those kinds of monies. Yeah. Education then was free and compulsory for whites. Black people had to pay and it was wow. not compulsory. Wow. You could not go to school from day one. Nobody would bother you. No social worker would visit and ask why aren't the children at school. So they were growing a body uh, of... of uh, of unskilled labor, mm. right? I mean, exactly as even Dr. Sure. Fairfoot said, in educating the black child, why would you have to learn mathematics? Mm. You never have to use it. Mm. You know, teach him to speak English so that he could be able to uh, understand orders and mm. be part of the growing economy of white South Africa. Mm. So we sure. grew up with that. So when you finish high school, you're very excited. I'm going to uh, Forte University. I'm going to study law. Yes. I was so excited. And of course, your father comes back and he says, I'm sorry. Mm. I can't. The other thing, you see, Africans at the, at the early um, 20th of the 20th century, children were an investment. Children were, so if you had more children, it's almost like my mom and dad said, if we have 11 children, maybe two will make it. <laughs> <laughs> There's more to make it. <laughs> maybe one or two or three will make it, then yeah. they'll look after us. Yeah. So that's where I grew up oh, wow. in that way. And at that time also, this was the time the ANC was recruiting young people mm -hmm. to go leave the country, to go uh, 
the train joined Mkonto overseas and part of the liberation struggle yeah. movement. And we were so excited. Yeah. Everybody was waiting for the call up. When are we leaving? What's happening? And exactly at that time, I remember that we had the call up. We're leaving on a Wednesday. Wow. I was a bad actor then because <laughs> my mom and dad knew something was going on. Why am I looking extraordinarily happy? Yeah. So they kept an eye on me. I don't know why or how. On the day we were leaving, my father was six foot six inches tall, wow. two meters wide. So quite the giant. <laughs> <laughs> and we lived in a three-roomed house. Yeah. So, and he came very late that night and not very sober, mm. not very sober. He fell at the door. So I tried to get him so that I could put him into bed because I was going to leave at about 2 or 3 a.m. Finally, I got him in bed, and I so tired. I fell asleep, and I oh. woke up at 5. Oh, wow. So you missed, you missed, missed the drafting, basically. I missed it. <laughs> I missed wow. it. And most of my friends left the country. Yeah. One or two of them came back. Yeah. I really don't know what happened to the others. Yeah. That was then that I decided... What am I going to do with my life? Yeah. And I thought, I'll get a job, raise money, put money aside, and then in another year, I'll be able to go to Forte University mm-hmm. and study law. And that's when I worked at Ford Motor Company mm-hmm. uh, as an engine assembler. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly uh, the first opening bit of Sizzle Banzi is Dead. Yeah. I, it was my yes. real experience wow. at that Ford engine plant. And Mr. Ford did visit, really, uh, from America. That's amazing. So that whole opening monologue of was Cesar actual... was actually recounting yeah. those days. Yes, sir. Come translate. If there was one thing I enjoyed all my seven years at Ford, it was to translate during general meetings. Yes, Mr. Basrelli. No, sir. Oh, no. We already, sir. Yes, sir. Iles, tell the boys in your own language. Today is a very big day in their lives. Tell them in your language. Thank you, sir. No mundo uti namsanje iminangula febomimbetu. This old fool says today is a hell of a big day in our life. So at the same time, I then met with a group of young people. Some, most of them were older than me, actually, who were serpent players in Port Elizabeth, and they were a drama group, and they were kind of like they excuse me. All their plays <laughs> were in English. Yes. And the place were not like like uh, Shantytown Township, Gibson Kente, like let's sing and dance. Yeah. Now they said there's nothing to sing about, there's nothing to dance about. Their plays were focusing in unenveloping the situation of black people in South Africa. What their mandate was, was to break the conspiracy of silence. Sure. You know, we sit with black people and we talk about nothing, nothing. Mm. And nobody wants to say Mandela is on Robben Island. Mm. Nobody wants to say that is a party because the informer network was so perfect within the black community. We mistrusted everybody. Sure. If someone said, hey, it's tough these days, eh? You knew that he was trying to make you talk. You think you're an informer, you want to get me arrested. Yeah. He was just talking about it's a tough day. Mm. So those were the days with, about that conspiracy. 
and that's when then I joined the group. Sure, like I have goosebumps. I can actually, like I actually feel like I was there as you speak. How important do you do you think it is? For art then and now to play a role in with regards to speaking about what or you know speaking about what is going on politically wherever it may be in the world that you find yourself. See, art is life, and conversely, life is art. Mm. When you look at a human being existing in a space, that environment would impact on the behavior. And the character of that human being, surrounded with a country that was a racist apartheid government with discrimination ultra, it was impossible as a young man not to feel that. Mm. So when I tell a story, it will be the story of my people around my street in my community. How can I miss the misery? Of my sure. people in that story. Mm. So even if I was telling you a love story, it would be a love story against impossible odds that would even make Romeo and Juliet look like a little like, kindergarten like play. <laughs> exactly. Right. And sure. you've told you about success when we celebrated a young person who has a BA degree, just BA nothing. Mm. It was the biggest event in the community because that was an impossible. A, a, a sort of achievement. Mm. So when I got engaged in the arts, it was fueled by my passion for freedom. Mm. I knew that the end prize is the liberation of our people. Mm. I knew that without giving all of myself, there will be no Broadway. There will mm. be no world stage. Mm. But the dream was there. I knew that South Africa was small for me. I knew that even my little township was preparing me as a springboard to get to where I wanted to sure. go, which was the world. Yeah. And I didn't allow anyone under no circumstances to interfere with my dream sure. and my journey. People ask sometimes, uh, were you conscious of making political plays? Mm -hmm. I said, I never made political plays. I reacted to my environment. Sure. I did not do protest theater because it was a white government of apartheid. Because the government was unjust. And those things made me uncomfortable. Mm. So if that exists today, if anything happens today that makes me feel uncomfortable, I speak. Like that. When I go to sleep and I'm thinking what's going on in this country and I listen to the news and I hear over 20 people have been killed in KZN and on political killings. When I hear that the bickering that goes on in parliament like a bad opera, like an absolutely bad play and I'm thinking... Is this what we went through for? Is this what we fought for? Is this what mm. we fought for? Sure. And I was saying one time to <laughs> former President Tabon Beki, and I was reminding him that in 1990s, when Mandela was released, we were asked to put away our AK-47s. Yeah. Because we are now going to go into negotiations, and Mandela and the elders, Sisulu and all of them are going to try and get a transition of a majority government that would liberate finally the African. The question for me has always been, we fought for freedom. How the hell did we end up with democracy? Wow. Explain that to me. Sure. My struggle was for my land, my mm. people, my country. Mm. 
Now suddenly I'm being told, no, it's a non-racial country. No, it's a country of all those who live here, as the Freedom Charter says. But I'm at the back of a marathon. Can somebody wait until I get to the starting point so that I could start the race with my fellow white South Africans at the Mm. same time, same skill, same opportunities? So for me, these were the shortcomings of the negotiated settlement which resulted in the democracy of South Africa. What we are going through today is the byproduct of that. Mm. There is a feeling of we never got really what we wanted. Though we may not know what we wanted, but we knew that it was not what's going on. (laughs) And because what's happening now is not the opposite of apartheid. It's a continuation. It seemed as if we transitioned into a democracy that rewards those that are near the well. And those that are far away from the well still have to walk miles to get water. And this is where we are. So my writings and my my work now, even the choices I make, are on dealing with the given situation. So I said to my friend, uh, the former president, remember when we were told to put away our AK-47s? The word put implies I know where it is. <laughs> you can pick it up again. That's so funny. Sure. Mm. Now, also, just <clears throat> touching on your relationship um, with former President Thabo Mbeki, uh, this will lead into the, uh, about your play Missing, which is uh, which was Missing is basically, if I'm not mistaken, it's about people who fought and they were in exile and then when there was time to negotiate and be part of the whole transition, some people were not called back. And if I remember the the story goes, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you actually asked uh, former President Thabo Mbeki, what do you th- how do you know who was chosen to come back? And what about the people who were never called back, who were missing? And then I think Thabo Mbeki just kind of said, yeah, there could have been a mistake like that. And he was just scared <laughs> that you were going to, you were writing a play about it. <laughs> so just talk to us about that and your relationship with him, because you seem to have insight on President Thabo Mbeki that few people do. You know, when uh, I, one of the few conversations I've had with uh, uh, former President Nelson Mandela, I asked him. Listen to you. You're like former, my friend, President Nelson Mandela, President Thabo Mbeki. <laughs> <No. laughs> I asked President Mandela, Tata, could you show me the piece of paper you signed? Maybe I'm being unfair. Yeah. I want to see the fine print, you know, <laughs> so that maybe things happening. I'm not happy with what's going wow. on. Perhaps if you could show me the document you signed with the former president, Declerc, mm. I would understand what were the agreements. Mm. Maybe there was a 10 years that says nothing's going to change until we get to this point. Maybe the fair distribution of wealth and sure. work and all. He said to me, I'm not going to talk to you because you're going to write a play about it. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> when I had the idea of uh, missing yeah. my latest play, it, it, I was always fascinated when I was abroad. The exile would talk about going home one day, yeah. going home one day. And uh, especially those exiles that married the natives of the countries that hosted them. Yes. That if they were in Uganda, they would marry a Ugandan woman. Yes. And or the spouse would be of the natives of that country. Then they then grow and children come up. And they th- 
assume that Kampala is their home, London is their home, mm. Paris is their home, Stockholm is their home, New York is their home. But the exile is always thinking one day I will go home. Mm. And then the other thing they did, they tend to exaggerate a little bit. About Their the role <laughs> they played in the struggle. I was number two to Ortambo. I was number two to Nelson Mandela. When we went through the border, with, there were so many crocodiles, like that movie about Vigo. Yes, yes. Yeah, with Kevin Klein swimming across the Caledon River with crocodile infested. And the river has been dry for a hundred years. <laughs> so when Nelson Mandela was released, there was a silence internationally. Yeah. There was a kind of an unsettled sort of concern because there was going to be those in exile will come back to South Africa to be part of the negotiations. Mm. Those that were in, 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 in prisons were released may also take place. Those that were part of the United Democratic Front may also take place. So I asked Tabon Bacon, was there a possibility that you guys missed someone mm. who should have been in that meeting, mm. who should have been called back and you missed it? He looked at me and he smiled. He said, it's possible, John. It's possible. That's when the idea came wow. of uh, Robert Vuyo Kalipa, yeah. who now lives in Stockholm and is a lecturer there, senior lecturer, married to a young girl whose father happened to be the owner of the telecommunications company as big as Nokia and Siemens. Right. So she's a billionaire. And he too now as to come back was they represented the African National Congress in Scandinavia and all mm. those countries, but wasn't called. That's the journey. Sure. To try and find out why was he not called. Sure. I was also dealing with the bickering and the position jostling among members of the ANC, knowing that there is going to be a possibility we could be in government. So people were sort of making alliances. People were lobbying for support. If I get that position, I'll give you that position. <laughs> so that whole kind of honest commitment to the people became position for me. Yes. Right. The other thing that I was testing, all these cross-cultural marriages, what was the glue that held them together? Was it because we met in exile or in London, wherever, and that's where we live? Or when we go back to my country of origin, sure. will it still hold? Or what, some of them left the country because the Immorality Act forbade the marriage between black and white. Yes. So they were breaking the law by having an affair. Yes. So now that that law does no longer exist, will the marriage or will the relationship hold? Sure. And also the fact that my do the daughters who were born or sons and daughters and born in exile, are cross-cultural yeah. basically. And also the only thing they know about Africa is that nostalgic memory of their parents. Yeah. They don't. So when they come to Africa, they come to the National Geographic Africa. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's when they the get same. into the township, yeah. it says, oh, no, this is not it's what like, I no had daddy, in mind. No, daddy, no, daddy. No, daddy. I go back to America, yeah? yeah? You can stay here. We're going back. <laughs> I come visit. Now, um, you know, we, you, you won a Tony Award, if I'm not mistaken, in yes. 1975, mm. right? Um now, in 2017, it's really hard for, um, it's well, not hard, but it's like quite a big thing between 20, say, 2007 to 2017 for an uh, African-American to win a Tony Award, which is kind of like the highest award that you can get in the theater world, right? In 1975, for a black African to win a Tony Award for a play about 
apartheid South Africa. That's like, I mean, just thinking about that, that's beyond extraordinary. But from what I understand with the story, you basically, you win the award on a Sunday and then on the Monday, your life changes. It's like all of a sudden, it's like, oh, you, you know, like it was just everything was different. Just talk to us about the morning after winning the Tony Award and how you realize that your life has changed. Like this is it. We had no idea what a Tony Award was. <laughs> yeah. And also, it, it was an American award. Mm. History has proven over the years that it was even difficult for an African-American yes. living there mm. uh, to win the Tony Award. It was always these big musicals and big sort of dramas. So we get nominated mm. for Best Actor, with Best Writer, and Best Director. Because we, we wrote Suzabanzi and the Island. Amazing. And that Sunday, we arrived, because we had a performance that Sunday afternoon. So when we walked into the Winter Gardens, we actually arrived with the mayor of New York. Into the Winter Gardens with the mayor of New York. <laughs> so people assumed that we possibly could be the bodyguards of That's the so mayor. <laughs> so we sat down and uh, uh, Meryl Streep and uh, Glenn Close. Imagine. Walter Matthau. There was uh, Mary Stapleton. Every Hollywood person you've ever thought about was sitting there going on stage and performing and then the announcement was made that the winners are John Kenai and Winston Schnarr. I like how you pronounce the name John Kenai. And I thought <laughs> but what we were talking you know in Corsa with Winston and suddenly everybody stood up and we were the only people sitting down and everyone says you won. You both of you won. <laughs> You're like Oh my God. So as we walk down there, we talk. What are we going to say? Yeah. So we say, thank you. You're right. Everybody was saying, <laughs> I think my mom, I think my agent, I think God, I think Jesus, I think blah, 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 you're blah, like, blah. <laughs> so like, we got there. They give me the Tony Award. I say, thank you. They give it to Winston. He says, thanks. We walk off. That was your acceptance speech. Acceptance Classic. Speech. <laughs> you're just the like, following morning, the New York Times yeah. said it was the most powerful silence sure. of these incredible human beings who in their own country, they are not even recognized, let alone as actors, but as human beings. Wow. It was the most powerful blow mm. to the apartheid racist laws. Sure. That got me into jail when I came back to South Africa. Because it openly declared me as a politician Petition. fighting apartheid. Imagine. Right. So you then go back to the Edison Theater on Broadway, 47th Street. I go back to my dressing room. It's different one. It's the main one. There's a table full of sushi and snacks. Two mowers, huge bottles, and a little fridge and a place to entertain friends. A little lying down. I was changing in a cubicle. And now it's like, but did you even like sushi? No. Yeah, you it's were raw. Like, like, no. Why, why is this fish not fried? <laughs> but this was meant for people coming of to a visit. Past. Oh my God, the queue outside, <clears throat> the autographs, and people every evening you are told that Sammy Davis is in the audience, Sidney Poitier is in the audience, oh, James Earl Jones is in the audience, oh, so and so in order, Al Pacino is in the audience, Mr. So and so is in every evening you are told, and they then come back. Then I realized this was for them. All that nice spread there <laughs> was for these people coming here. And of course, your salary per week in US dollars became, if you put two zeros, 
Sure. It's just put two zeros. So we now had to, couldn't keep it in the, under the pillow, the money. We had Anymore. to open a bank account because it was a huge amount of yeah. money. So and that's what happened. So we came back to South Africa very, very excited. We won a Tony Award. So we had a performance in uh, former Transkei Butterworth. That's and during the performance, you. I saw police with guns blocking the exits. And we spoke in Corsa with Winston and says, it looks like we're going to be arrested tonight. <laughs> <laughs> what a paradox. So what at the a end of it, sure. we were arrested. Sure. And now, um, you know, I also like when you sign, you sign to WME, right? Which is like, yes. I mean, Dr. Kani, like, I think I, I really want this law of proximity to work in my life. <laughs> Where you're concerned. But jokes aside, you signed with WME and they basically told you something which I feel that a lot of African creatives need to understand. Just the importance of managing your finance. Because like you said, you know, um, a lot of people, you know, obviously with regards to the struggle, a lot of people had gone uh, gone out and not come back. But also similarly, when you look at um, musicians who come from the same generation as you and even people now, mm-hmm. or artists or creatives or people in the creative arts as a whole, let's just say, um, they basically, they either die as paupers or they live as paupers or that sort of thing. But you learned some very critical roles um, and critical things and important things, you know, which I'd love for you to share because with regards to the creative arts in general in Africa, it's really exploding. Things that you learned that have helped you secure your money, so to speak. My agent, may the soul rest in peace Esther Sherman mm. sat me down and said now you're a Tony Award winner mm. you've now become a business yeah. you've now become a brand mm. you are now going to be the CEO of the business called John Carney mm. whenever you engage yourself in anything work or non-work but related to the arts we're going to talk business mm. me and you are going to run this business mm. you will be the artist on stage mm. and once that is finished the business gets in done you have to understand that <clears throat> if you don't become a millionaire within this next five years it's your failure sure now you have to understand that Number one, when whatever fee we ask for, we will take the WME 10%, but then you have to pay yourself per month. The rest must be put away as a business because you are reinvesting in you. Mm. And that was the first lesson I got. And then she sent me to attend a, a small little course in New York. It's called Financial Management for non-financial managers. Wow. Just to be able to read the spreadsheet, to understand what the budget is, to understand what are the the, the, uh, the bottom lines, what uh, overheads, and all this is me. And as I, from 1975 to 1985, as I did more work and more work and uh, made money, and I realized that, I operated as a business. Sure. I had a family that would say, I think we should change the fridge. And I would say, not this time when I do the next job, because then I would have the money to do that before the money does this and that. I have seven children and they all fell under that business plan Mm. that they were not children of the successful John Carney, the children of the company. And they are part of the liabilities 
of the company and they are also assets of the company. Mm. So this is how I, 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 I manage my life. Mm. And bring up to today, and when I speak to young actors and the Duman Lovud called me to have a chat with Mubango and I meet with others during the, my, my life and they always ask, explain the longevity. I said, no, no, because if someone can put me in a play and it's sold out, and just pay me the actor's fee. If someone could bring me in a movie and it's sold out because I am in it, so why am I not understanding that, that I am a yes. commercial viable commodity? Right. So I should be part of this business. Mm. So and that's what I learned very, very early in my life mm. to be able to understand, as people in, in LA would, in New York would always say, it's show business, darling, but the word business is longer than the word show. Wow, I like that. And now just with Marvel uh, comics and all of that, Captain America, you can tell that I'm a huge fan of that. Uh, so uh, in Captain America, you basically are the reason for the Marvel, for the, fran- the movie franchise moving forward, why Klusa is going to be the official language <laughs> of, the, of the Marvel comics, uh, the, the TV, the movie franchises, sorry. Talk to us about how that all happened because I think that's quite a, it's quite a fun story. Well, my agent at the MLA, Munin, is a fantastic lady, said to me, I know it's a comic book thing. Would you like to do it? She's always careful when she introduces a sort of a possible engagement to me. Said, would you want to do a comic thing? I said, Munin, yes. Of course. It's going to pay the money and keep the, 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 the wolf away from the door. Yeah. What's it about? She said, they're doing this movie, Captain America. Yeah. And they would like you to play uh, King uh, Tichaka, who is... The father of the Black Panther. Yeah, I said, fantastic, awesome. great, I'll do it. So I arrived in, uh, uh, set in that we shot it in Atlanta, mm. and there was uh, I was met by the producers and Marvel people. People always ask me this silly question: How does it feel to be on set with this particular superstar from America? People like Chris Evert, people like Scarlett Johansson, people like uh, uh, what you call Chadwick Brosnan and all of them. And I said, shouldn't you rather reverse the surely, question? Surely, surely. Shouldn't yes. you rather find out from them how it feels, how it feels to be in my presence? Yeah. First, as just as an African elder. Mm-hmm. And then perhaps for the little work I've done. Mm-hmm. So you arrive on set and everything is stopped and the director will introduce you to everybody. Amazing. We shoot this scene. I'm supposed to be addressing it, it in Vienna, the United Nations offices. So I'm talking to uh, Chad because my son, mm-hmm. the black man, and I'm also talking to uh, Scarlett Johansson. Mm-hmm. So then she leaves. Now we have a scene together and it's written in English. So I said, excuse me to the director. Why am I speaking English to my son? Mm. I come from Wakanda and I haven't seen him for a long time. So the the line simply is, I miss you, my son. Mm. I haven't seen you for a long time. Mm. And then they sort of half suggest the Tarzan thing. You know, that hunger, and then the subtitles will explain what I'm saying. Imagine. I said, no. Well, I'm going to talk to him. Yeah. So I says, And fortunately, Chadwick had worked in South Africa. Mm. He's so Nigerian, the, he, right? 
He's no, mad, he's American. Afri- yeah, African American. Okay. Okay. And he had a couple of words like Sawona, yeah. uh, Molo. And I said, <laughs> and he said, please, please, I need more of those clicks. <laughs> so then we started that way, oh, nice. which then began this whole idea of recognizing Isikosa mm. as the official oh, language nice. of Wakanda. Yeah. At the end of that shoot, and I say to him, see you. He said, no, I'm going to see you again. Because I didn't know about the Black Panther. Yeah. He said, no, I'm going to see you again, daddy. said, why? He says, because in the Black Panther, which is now the first one ever to have a black hero. I love that. The comic book hero. Yes. This one is it's a black hero mother. Mm. So uh, there are times in my life when things are bad. I go back to my father's grave and I talk to you. So you're going to be coming as I continue nice. the Black Panther series. You'll be coming in again and again and again. So we then went to um, Atlanta again to shoot the Black, Black Panther, Panther together. But then they needed a, a younger actor who will play me when I was young. Because that's when the powers were sort of... I, I got Post, the powers yes. as the Black Panther. And they come to South Africa, interview a couple of actors... And then they decide that one because it does look like John. And we'll take that one. So my son says to me, "Oh, I went to an audition a couple of weeks ago. I didn't tell you. I'm in. I'm playing um, the Funny. Prince Tichakas." And then they find out it's his son. That's crazy. Said, no wonder he looked like him. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That's so awesome. and it was fantastic experience. Yeah. Really, Lupita Nyong'o, Danai, if, uh, Angela Bassett. You know, they were all there. Forrest Whitaker, and all these guys. All of them say one thing. I started you when I was at Yale. Amazing. When I was in UCLA, you got there. You remember you, you spoke to us as students. And you don't remember me. And one says, my teacher said, go see this play on Broadway. Amazing. You will know why you want to be an actor. Yeah. Christopher Walken. I mean, people are just saying, Matthew Broderick says, you blew my mind. Yeah. We found out that art can have an impact. Art cannot just be entertainment. Art is a possibility to change a society. Mm. We learned that from the, uh, the artists from Africa, mm. the artists from, from, from South Africa. Now, it's just amazing because I love the way, you know, with all these different people, you're everybody's favorite artist's favorite artist. You're the one that everybody studies, which is quite extraordinary. I love that. Now, you know, with Black Panther, it's uh, what I love about um, what I've seen and everything is the cast has such a, a wide range of people of African origin. You've got Kenya represented. You've got Uganda, Nigeria, South Africa. You know, in your opinion, do you do you feel that it's a reflection of the fact that America and the world perhaps is finally ready to see African talent be put to the forefront as part of you know because the Marvel comic series is huge it's mm. incredible do you feel that it, 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 it represents an important time in history in terms of that there was a time even in theater that mm. major roles like Othello mm. like uh, uh, would never be given to black actors mm. white actors put black makeup on their faces to play these major roles these days, even during the soapies and the great bold and beautifuls and the, the, the world tens and all of them, there came a time mm. where the non-racial casting became the policy of Hollywood, mm. whereby when you cast a lawyer, the argument from the Screen Actors Guild, why could that lawyer not be black? Mm. What does lawyer has to be white? You cast a professional, but they're still having a small little sort of difficulty in relationships and they want to prove that the relationship could have happened 
that there was a black and white relationship mm. in the story itself. So now Hollywood are going the other direction now. If the part is of an African, there are African actors living mm. in America. Mm. There are African actors coming from the continent. Mm. There are African actors coming from Nigeria, from the, the, all, all over the right. world. Yeah. But there is this feeling that if we get this artist directly from the continent now, they have a sort of a raw inner strength that is African. I'm not saying African-American or Africans in this diaspora have lost that. When, 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 I, when I did um, um, Coriolanus mm. with Ray Fiennes yes. and uh, in, we shot in Serbia and I want, they wanted General Cominius to play the mediator. They chose me because I've come through the process of truth and reconciliation. Sure. And like that, that the war, sort of post-war reconciliation was fresh in my life experience. You see, now they're prepared to go all over the world to find the right character as defined or by the writer or the director. Mm. So the, the, the world is, is opening up. Africa is moving in. Chiwetel Eji for, I mean, many you could look at every, like, uh, even Idris Elba. Mm, These guys are African. They are not apologizing now. They're not trying to be as American in accent as possible. (laughs) They say, I can do the role, but I'm an African. Yes. You know. So for me, it's, it's powerful that Africa is no longer seen as the dark continent or mm. a dumping ground mm. or somewhere to siphon the wealth out. Mm. But Africa is now as an identity and a strength. So now we're doing the, the Lion King. Yes, I mean, like, you know what? Like, with, can I, okay, can I, have you guys shot Lion King yet? I know that you're probably not allowed to speak and you're so good at keeping secrets. Oh, Have you yes. shot anything there yet? There is a, what's called, um, non-disclosure, non-disclosure yes. clause. No, but we did two weeks ago receive a, the right to speak. Yes. Without really getting into yeah. detail how it's done. What then happens is, I get cast as to to voice Rafiki. Yes. Right. Then you go into a studio, yeah. and the directors you have a discussion with them yeah. into sort of defining the journey and the character mm. and what I feel about Rafiki. And I says to these Hollywood directors and producers, you do realize, of course, that the Lion King is an African country. It's an African story. Yes. Hey, it's happened somewhere in Kruger National Park. Yes. Or somewhere in Mfolozi in Kenya. Yeah. You know, that whole trek of the animals up and yes. down. That's yes. where these lions yeah. are. So he is an old, wise sage yes. who is only invited when there are great occasions, like a wedding, mm. like a death, like a birth, mm. you know. And that's when Rafiki mm. is. So we had this wonderful time. So what we do then, you, you get a few... M- areas and lines where you say it so that they can get the sense of your voice and your take and take the sense of your interpretation of the character and your understanding of the environment then you work with relationship to Simba in relationship to Mufasa in relationship to Scar in relationship to the Pumba and Timor in relationship to uh, uh, you know Zazu and the others you know and, and at the end to, to, to Nala as well. Yes. So in that Who, who's way. Who's played by Beyonce. Who's yes. played by Beyonce. Yes. In that way, then you, you get a sense of what the character is. And then you have mm. another second recording while they're working on the CGI. When they finish, that's why we're releasing 2018, 2019 yes. July. 
That's how we come to the end of this episode of Africa State of Mind. There are people who are icons and there are people who are legends. Dr. John Carney, without a doubt, is iconic. Thank you so much, sir, for spending time with us. It's been amazing. If you enjoyed this interview with Dr. John Carney, and if you're enjoying the Africa State of Mind podcast in general, don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to tell your friends about it. Don't forget to rate and review us so we know that we're on the right path with regards to the podcast. Other than that, we'll catch you next week on another episode of Africa State of Mind with Lee Kasumba. Thanks. Bye.